welcome to the CMEC podcast. I'm Cheyenne Talabani, Head of Programs at CMEC. Iran has been much in the news in recent weeks. Recently, President Biden launched an airstrike in Syria against pro-Iranian militias, which had been accused of attacking American bases. Tehran said it was refusing to take part in EU-brokered talks over the so-called Iranian nuclear deal because of Washington's refusal to lift sanctions. From Yemen to Iraq, pro-Iranian proxies operate with apparent impunity, advancing what many see as the cause of Tehran, often to the detriment of the region's stability. Here in the United Kingdom, the government's priority remains to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapons capability, to promote stability and security in the region, secure the release of our dual nationals, and to keep the diplomatic door open for discussions with Iran across the full range of UK interests. So what can the West do now to fix its troubled relationship with Iran? And how best to proceed in the interests of peace in the region and further afield? To discuss the current state of play and the way forward, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Sanam Vakil, Deputy Director of the Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham House, and by Bob Seeley, Conservative MP for the Isle of Wight and a prominent member of the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Late last year, the committee published its report on the UK's relationship with Iran, entitled No Prosperity Without Justice. Sanam, Bob, thank you both so much for being with us. I'd like to start our conversation today by talking about the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. The JCPOA was the agreement reached between Iran and the five permanent members of the UN Security Council that included the US and, of course, the United Kingdom. That was up until President Trump withdrew the US from the agreement in May 2018. Perhaps we can start with you, Sanam. I wanted to ask, how much do you think our current problems with Iran stem from Donald Trump's decision to withdraw from the 2015 Iranian nuclear deal brokered by President Obama? Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here um, discussing this very timely issue of Iran as uh, the Biden administration is looking to pursue a different path with regards to Iran's nuclear program. I think it's very easy to obviously lay the blame for all of the problems uh, with regards to Iran policy at at the door of President Trump. And I have been actually quite staunch critic of President Trump's maximum pressure policy. But obviously for the UK, tensions and difficulties with Iran date back for a number of decades. Um, But the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement that was negotiated between Iran and Germany, France, the United Kingdom, the United States, China, and Russia was a successful multilateral agreement that really did constrain Iran's nuclear program. It was verified by the International Atomic Energy Agency well over 15 times. And Trump's policy of putting more pressure on Iran, withdrawing from the deal and imposing over 1500 sanctions on the Iranian economy uh, has definitely taken us back in time uh, to a period of tensions over an issue that many people had thought was resolved. Bob, from a UK perspective and from a UK parliamentarian's perspective in particular, what was the context of the committee's decision took hold this inquiry looking into the UK's relationship with Iran that led to the publishing of the Foreign Affairs Committee report. 
I think it was a sense that although the committee hasn't been doing much work on the Middle East, because there's always so much to do, you sort of think, well, how can we actually realistically and usefully contribute? Because of the specific issues that we've had with Iran, we did think it was worthwhile in looking into Iran and trying to understand the relationship better and how that relationship has gone wrong. Sadly, it more or less has. There are a number of factors to take into account. Just to be parochial, there's a damaged relationship with the UK that we see in terms of the incredibly unhelpful and incredibly illegal, wretched hostage taking by Iran. There's an active Cold War between Saudi and Iran in the Middle East, and the Iranians have actually been doing pretty well with their allies, Russia. So in Syria and in Lebanon, Iran's power has been shown probably at cost to the region. I think the frustration for some people, including myself, is that Iran is a country that, like Russia, that if it hadn't had its revolution, would have been a natural and long-term partner. Iran is a very old, very serious state with profound traditions and a state that has produced a lot of very smart, very you know, cultured, intelligent human beings. And it's just a huge frustration that you seem to have two Irans. You have a modern Iran, which is partially hidden under the sort of dead weight of the mullahs. And it's just a question of trying to, for us, is working out how you can make useful, beneficial engagement with those bits of Iran that actually want to engage and want to be part of the modern world and are not tied to a sort of needlessly antagonistic revolutionary tradition. Not unlike Russia, you could say, but in obviously in a very different part of the world. Thank you, Bob. And thanks for making the point about understanding the sort of the bits of Iran, as you called it. I think a big problem that many policy policymakers make um, in the West is that they view the Middle East region and the countries within the Middle East in a very one dimensional way. And of course, that's, you know, it's never the reality of, of what it is on the ground. We certainly did that when we were trying to understand the cause and the start of the Arab uprisings in the region. We continue to do that, I think, when we try to understand our friends and our allies in the Khalij and the Gulf. And, you know, we have probably done it with Iran the most. Right from the offset of the revolution, we failed to really understand the reason and the context, the context of the revolution for quite a long time. And, you know, of course, in recent years, the fraught relationship with the West has meant that we have less and less exposure to the reality of the ground in Iran. You would have thought that Iran, without the Mullahs, would have been our natural allies, without the Shia revolution. And, you know, there were good reasons for that revolution. I'm not knocking it per se, but unfortunately, it's produced a very negative dynamic. A lot of revolutions have when you've got people who are then tied to the original culture, strategic culture produced by that revolution, at cost, frankly, to their nation, and at cost, certainly, to the relationship with many states in the world, the UK, the European Union, and the United States, most of all. Just to jump back, Sanam, to the JCPOA. Last year, it was widely reported that Iran had apparently restarted enriching uranium and was expanding its stockpile of nuclear fuel. What, as far as we know, is the current state of Tehran's nuclear program? Iran, in reaction to the U.S. withdrawal from the nuclear program, began its own policy that it refers to as its maximum resistance policy, where one year on from the U.S. withdrawal, it began a series of breaches to the nuclear program, really to try to press the international community, specifically European countries, to defend the JCPOA and to provide Iran with sanctions relief. 
And effectively, since May of 2019, Iran has made a number of breaches, each more alarming, I think, for the for the E3, the countries known as the E3. And they have increased their stockpile of low enriched uranium. They are also producing heavy water. They are developing advanced centrifuges, also at a facility, their Fordo facility that was meant to be closed. And they've also pushed back against IAEA inspections most recently, and all of this really to signal ultimately to the JCPOA signatories that they're not going to continue to maintain compliance if U.S. sanctions continue to weigh on Iran. But at the same time, the political establishment does continue to reinforce that all of these measures are reversible. And they have taken each of these steps, according to them, in measure to the U.S. sanctions and to balance against the U.S. sanctions so that if and when negotiations take place with the Biden administration, there can be sort of mutual steps back to the JCPOA rather than just Iran returning without any sort of guarantees. Thank you very much, Sanam. And I mean, Bob, you mentioned earlier some of the specific issues and incidents that led the Foreign Affairs Committee to hold this inquiry looking into the UK's relationship with Iran. CMEC as an entity, you know, used to hold some very quite successful delegations from peers and foreign peers to Iran. We've had to stop those. They've, you know, ultimately they've stopped because, of course, over the last four or five years, there's been a list of serious, very serious international incidents from the jailing of dual Iranian British national Nazanin Zahari Ratcliffe to the Trump administration's assassination of top Iranian General Qasem Soleimani in the beginning of last year. How much have these incidents complicated what was already a very fraught relationship between the United Kingdom and Iran? Okay, I think there's a general principle that you don't stop talking to people. And an ethical foreign policy doesn't mean you go and stop communicating. So, you know, the worse the relationship gets, arguably, the more you need to be talking to people. Uh, it's certainly a complicated relationship, and it's been wor- made considerably worse by the wretched taking of state hostages, which is completely immoral and incredibly counterproductive. And it just makes the, Ura- uh, the Iranians look awful uh, and, frankly, makes it very difficult for us to deal with them. I do think we should still be visiting, if only to say, what the hell are you doing? So I think our policy needs to be, we have frankly have a larger carrot and a larger stick. If you support the JCPOA, then clearly President Trump's behaviour was wrong and incredibly counterproductive. And actually, it really hurt those forces in Iran who wanted to reach out and have a constructive relationship because all the ultra-conservatives and the mullahs could turn around and say, there, we told you, you can't trust the United States. So unfortunately, it had a very considerable impact. The merits of the JCPOA, you can park, but just pulling out of it was a huge error of judgment. And you know, if we can get that JCPO back on track, then that will be a very, very considerable help. But I'm all for operating with a much, you know, as big a carrot as you can with Iran, but also a considerably bigger stick in a way that you hit the Revolutionary Guard wherever you can in whatever they're doing in the Middle East. And if we know if the Revolutionary Guard are having to extract a higher and higher, or we are extracting a higher price on their behavior, whilst at the same time, reaching out to more moderate elements in Iran and more frankly mainstream elements that are probably more representative of the people as a whole. I think that is a potentially useful way forward. I mean, I was looking over the report and I think what a lot of the the people who provided evidence, people like um, Dr. Vakil and others, 
what a lot of them emphasized was that the UK was viewed in a different way to the US um, by Iranians. We look, we have a very look. I know that Salam and you probably have a much better idea of Iranian Anglo-Iranian history than I do, but it's pretty fascinating. And there has been a very detailed and in-depth relationship with Iran, and actually quite a productive one at times. Clearly, there was, you know, quite transactional in places, and you couldn't fault it. And we know that Iranians or certain Iranians often refer to the 1958 coup, etc., uh, etc., et and the CIA and MI6 role in that, etc., which is frankly a very, very long time ago now. But there has been a very, very long tradition of pretty amicable and good relationship between us and actually a really strong tradition of understanding Persian thought and ideas and people. And and likewise, Iranians and Persians having communities in this country as well. And it is it's just such a missed opportunity that that relationship has run into the ground so badly in the last decades. Clearly, it's been largely because of the overthrow of the Shah and the Iranian revolution. But there have been times since when maybe more can be done. For me, Iran is one of those countries where you just we, we're just going to continue to get things back on track, even if it takes decades until such time as we do. But we just keep on building those relationships with more moderate groups in that country, because actually it doesn't help Iran to suffer so significantly from US and Western sanctions. And it doesn't help the people of Iran who are like Palestinians, incredibly educated, incredibly, you know, a lot of very well aware of what's happening in the world around them, very plugged into the English speaking world as well. It is just a huge frustration, that relationship. We haven't been able to do more with it. I do slightly wonder that we're being a little bit overly bureaucratic in our approach to Iran. And actually, we should continue to reach out. I wish we were doing some more. Understanding the negative dynamics and how they could be portrayed. On the issue of Nazanin Zahari Ratcliffe, I wanted to ask you, Sanam, what is, in your opinion, Iran's objective with these sort of detentions? And again, how far can we in the West now go to resolving them? I think it's a really critical question that really impedes UK-Iranian relations, but Iran's relations with many countries at this point, because there are so many dual nationals being detained from uh, Germany to France. There were Australians being detained. And of course, there are a wide array of Americans as well, including a friend of mine. I would say, you know, there's much that lies here. This is a policy that the Islamic Republic has been engaging in since 2006, where you know they have been intermittently detaining academics, journalists, researchers who have, according to them, larger objectives of uh, supporting civil society. And I think at the heart here, parts of the Iranian um, political and security establishment see this hostage-taking practice as beneficial to their leverage building in negotiations with the West to extract concessions. And uh, of course, uh, this is highly damaging, I think, to Iran's international credibility. Also, for a country that was looking to build on the JCPOA and encourage international investment into Iran, of course, this policy of detaining dual nationals and and hostage-taking very much has uh, tainted Iran's reputation. I would just add to to something that Bob mentioned. I commend his approach and sort of call for better engagement with Iran. I would recommend that that engagement not only be focused on moderates or pragmatists within the Iranian political system, and I think that one of the areas where the international community and particularly the UK government could build upon is actually to broaden their level of engagement inside Iran and not have it be limited to the individuals that people are comfortable 
comfortable with, but actually start yeah. engaging with people that you're uncomfortable with because of that dialogue and engagement that some of these historical and contemporary issues of mistrust uh, can be resolved. When I talk about engaging with people, I'm, 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 you know, let's talk to the Revolutionary Guard. I mean, it's not unlike Russia in some ways. The people you have to talk to, who are the people very often who set a values agenda as well as a power agenda, are not actually terribly nice, or regardless of whether they're personally pleasant or not, their morality, their value system is incredibly antagonistic. And, and we know that the Revolutionary Guard are the champions of subversive and non-conventional forms of warfare and conflict, not only in the Middle East, but in the 80s and 90s especially in Europe with the assassinations etc so actually talking to those people is really important it's interesting what you say about you know academics who are there in part supporting civil society and I think this again you know Moscow and Tehran have a similar sort of fear of uprisings that are not controlled because you've got those sort of revolutionary let me put an idea to you and you can tell me if you think it's sensible you've got the the, the keepers of the revolution whether it's Putin and the power ministries and the and the old Bolsheviks to want of, want of a better word or people who see their country in that tradition and you've got the mullahs in iran doing exactly the same thing and they both of these people both of these sets of people who represent power ministries the security agencies the military and the non-conventional military and that sort of revolutionary guard they fear protest on the street and they fear western manipulation in their country and they fear effectively color revolutions and that's why slapping down on westerners by arresting them in iran's case or exposing them as spies quotes unquotes in, in russia's case it it pretty much has the same effect that it is a fear of civil society and a war against over over what to war over influence and who's trying to influence their society I would agree with the characterization, and I actually think that conservatives and hardliners, and and if you subscribe to the idea that there's a deep state in Iran, also believe that uh, the Russia model is one that is somewhat similar towards. I I think ultimately, people like the Supreme Leader and conservative ideologues close to him very much fear the downfall of the Soviet Union. And so in order to prevent glasnost or civil society unrest, which they have seen at multiple occasions uh, from 1999 to 2009. They are engaging in heavily repressive activities, both formally through arrests and detentions and, and, and closing down formal civil society organizations, but also through cyber activities and policing activists and arresting any sort of dissidents that do emerge in Iran. So Bob said something earlier that I wanted to say for our discussion. He said this before we started recording, and I just want to paraphrase him because I think this is now probably the perfect time. Do you actually deal with the Revolutionary Guard or the ultra-conservative revolutionary factions and potentially strengthen them? Or do you relentlessly try to reach out to civil society, in which case the rulers in Iran might take action against you for doing that and also take action against those people that they sort of allege you're colluding with? Well, I don't think it should be binary. I think that it probably should be a bit of both. But you know, frankly speaking, I think a lot of the problem for the leadership in Iran is that they see Western hypocrisy in dealings with Iran vis-a-vis other countries in the region, and that they're double 
standards and contradictions. So why is Iran a special case, particularly after the fact that the Islamic Republic actually has managed to survive and, you know, is still there after so many years? So, you know, these sort of issues are very much exploited and manipulated by political elites and insiders inside Iran. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I believe Mm -hmm. that we should uh, support and encourage civil society, but at the same time, uh, support and encourage engagement. Um, But there has to be a sort of balanced approach, uh, and it shouldn't just be about sort of national interests and and strategic interests. If we're going to support civil society, we should be supporting... But there is, but okay, you make a really valuable point. So, as a Brit, if you're a Brit foreign minister, would you say actually this is just about us improving our state relationships, and so we're just going to deal with those people in power, and we focus on them? You sort of answered this question already, so I'm in danger of slightly probably repeating. Or is this a, a values exercise? You say a bit of both. So effectively, you're reaching out to the leadership, but you're also trying to say we will have conversations to everyone, but that includes you. I mean, I do wonder how they're going to take that because they might still see that as as a threat. Oh, no doubt they'll see it as a threat. And that, you know, is a bit of the vicious circle, uh, I think, that Western policymakers are in with regards to Iran. But if part of UK foreign policy is to defend British values and and nurture those values, then we can't sort of shy away from them with regards to Iran, but also with other countries. And I think this is herein lies the problem, that it's not applied equally. Civil society and and human rights is not equally uh, celebrated or supported uh, throughout the Middle East. I mean, I'm hoping that the Biden administration will take a more holistic approach to defending human rights as part of their democracy agenda. But I think promoting a fair human rights policy would be more effective for activists everywhere. I also want to talk about, you know, the wider region and the role that Iran plays in the wider region. There are many pro-Iran militia groups that seem to be everywhere across the Middle East, from the Houthis in Yemen to the militias in Iraq and Syria. How important are they to Iran's strategic objectives? And what role do you think they play in destabilizing the region? Of course, they're hugely destabilizing because uh, Iran's strategy is to build networks outside its country. And these networks of influence advance Iran's interests and push or protect Iran uh, far away from Iran's borders and closer to its perceived strategic threats in the region. So it is highly destabilizing because these networks destabilize each of the countries where Iran is uh, engaged in. But within Iran and within the political establishment, this policy, this strategy, forward defense strategy is seen to be very low cost and actually has proven through a number of decades to be quite effective at protecting Iran's sort of sovereignty um, and protecting Iran, shielding Iran from attack from abroad. So this is not a policy that's productive regionally. It doesn't build strong institutions or it doesn't promote or nurture positive engagement in the countries that Iran is operating in. And I think that there's a huge amount of ill will towards Iran around the Arab world because of its policies. But at the same time, I think it is incumbent upon Middle Eastern leaders to also reflect on why Iran has a paranoid and defensive view of itself. And Iran should consider why it is perceived to be offensive and aggressive. And that needs to be unpacked a bit more in the region. 
And of course, I mean, many of these sort of proxies were, they were operating in the region before the signing of the JCPOA. So how far can the West go in reducing the influence of these proxies and de-escalating these conflicts in which they play a role as part of an overall agreement with Iran? Uh, maybe we'll start with you, Sanam, and Bob, if you have some thoughts you can add to that. Mm-hmm. I see this really as a multi-step process. First, I think that the JCPOA must must be seen as as the first sort of theater of negotiation between Iran and uh, the P5 plus one. Some level of confidence has to be restored before Iran might begin to discuss the broader issues. So I see the JCPOA as a first step, and then perhaps through multilateral segregated discussions on the myriad of regional conflicts be it Syria, Yemen, Israel, and Palestine, these conflicts can be broken apart and parts of Iran's regional policy can be addressed, those being missiles and support for proxy groups and proliferation of lethal aid. But the reason why I'm recommending breaking them apart, first of all, this is part of a new body of work that Chatham House is going to be publishing that I've been working on with a colleague of mine, Neil Quilliam, and it's based on interviews and work that we've been doing on this topic of regional security. But second of all, because Iran doesn't see itself as the only negative actor in the region that supports militias, has missiles, and proliferates lethal aid. So the best way to see a more long-term sustainable arrangement vis-a-vis Iran would be to see a regional concessions on all of these issues. It's in that sort of multilateral framework that Iran might be more willing to make concessions when other actors are also cooperating in the same vein. I would just add that, I mean, as someone who served in Iraq, I do remember we were very well aware that it was the Republican Guard who was supplying the weaponry that was whacking into our bases and the rockets that was sort of being dropped on our bases. And indeed the mortars and and, and you know and the, the attacks on paramilitary groups, et cetera, et cetera. So non-conventional warfare is very low cost. And actually it is pretty, it can be done well in an integrated way quite successful because it disorientates other people and it subverts other societies and causes significant problems. In fact, one of the things that I know is worrying policymakers, military policymakers, especially during the Iraq war, the ISIS campaign, was that Iran effectively has now a land corridor to the Mediterranean. So via Syria, via Iraq, which is now pretty much under Iranian domination. I mean, talk about strategic errors. The second Iraq war was a phenomenal strategic error if you wanted to weaken Iranian power, because in fact, you extended Iranian power and the power of the Republican guards over large swathes of Iraq. Not so much clearly the Kurdish held areas, but certainly the Shia held areas. So that was a problem. We do tend to see this in terms of the West versus Iran. And actually, as Sanam points out, it's a much more complicated dynamic. And actually, we shouldn't be too hung up on the West versus Iran angle, because a much more significant angle is, you know, Iran's dynamic with Israel and Iran's dynamic with the Arab world. And you need a more generalized understanding where we can hopefully play a supportive role, but to primarily to regional actors coming to a new understanding or a new acceptance. So you tone down the rhetoric on both sides and actually you tone down the subversive activity because the Saudis feel they've got to engage with the Iranians. Frankly, they have not done so as well as the Iranians. And you had this all sorts of moral quandaries where the Saudis were backing, potentially the US, were backing some fairly unsavory Sunni customers or Sunni actors in in Syria, which I think caused all sorts of moral hazard problems. And so you're drawing the Saudis into a battle 
revolutionary cultures tend to be quite good at subversive and non-conventional warfare. And the Iranians are no exception to that. So the more we can steer Iran away from that sort of subversive behavior, frankly, the better. But as Salam says, you need a new a sort of other people. It's not just a question of pointing the finger at Iran and getting them to do things. They will probably want to see movement from Saudi and movement from Israel as well on things. And it is more important, frankly, that those regional actors align and we can support that. Then we think that this is about the West versus Iran, which, you know, frankly, is is... It sort of is, but but not entirely and not even the majority of the problem. My next question is again for both of you. Do you think we're doing enough to sort of see the world through Iran's eyes and understanding its fears and and its ambitions? Or is playing sort of hardball the only language that Tehran understands? The answer is we don't. I'm a very patriotic Brit and I love the West and I love liberal democracy. It's not perfect. And one of the, the mistakes that we make when it comes to diplomacy and when it comes to understanding others is that we don't put ourselves in the in the position of other people to anything like the extent that we should. And I saw that when in military operations in Libya and Iraq and Afghanistan, that actually other people are much better at understanding us than we are at understanding other people. And too much of Western and action, and I don't want to get into a right-left dynamic, but too much of Western action is about a narcissistic sense of, you know, we have these moral values, so we're going to do this, or we're going to do that, aren't we wonderful? Actually, morality is about arriving at a positive end state, not just about expressing yourself through action. So if we wanted to be very intelligent about what we're doing, we would understand other people much more generally than we do. And I do think it is has been a significant weakness, especially when it comes to taking military action and understanding the dynamic of how our military forces have interacted with people, whether it's in Iraq or whether it's in Afghanistan or other places. So we do need to put ourselves much more in the eyes of other people. And I think if we did that, then we would actually find our policymaking was substantially improved. That does not mean that you go easy on people. I'm all for taking a very hard line on the Republican Guard and whenever the Americans frankly bomb them, well, you know, they're probably asking for trouble. So that is a carrot and stick approach. And if there's a big stick, but a bigger carrot, then that is a good way forward. I would also just add something really quickly. I think that within the British government, there's a huge amount of capacity and knowledge, particularly at the FCDO about Iran. And I think that that knowledge, you know, is hopefully harnessed, but I'm repeatedly impressed by the depth of knowledge among the civil service on Iran. You know, of course, that doesn't trickle out, uh, perhaps, and, and there's not maybe enough social awareness, but I do think that there is possibility and potential for that to be built upon. Um, Iran by no means only responds to to pressure. But I think that it has shown that it's very good at responding to pressure. It, I think, actually functions best when it is under pressure. And I think that is a bit of the challenge and the consequence of 40 years of sanctions and containment of the Islamic Republic. It doesn't do normal as well as it does abnormal. It has learned to operate uh, in a very low-cost, survivalist way at the political level. And this, um, I think, should be changed. And, and you know, through policies of engagement and with dialogue and diplomacy, and one that is a strategy that is going to take uh, perhaps a, a decade or two of investment, that level of engagement can be nurtured. And perhaps Iran can feel less threatened and, and less isolated and begin to moderate its regional policies and its uh, sort of position vis-a-vis the international community. Just just on that point, uh, Sean, I mean, revolution 
revolutionary and post-revolutionary states thrive on a war footing, thrive on the creation of enemies inside and outside their countries. And also, you know, when they, they tend to thrive at non-conventional forms of conflict in a way that Western liberal democracy, law-governed states do find very difficult to deal with. So if you really want to hurt Iran, you know, you deny them enemies to point out, you deny them enemies inside and outside the country. You know, these states can't deal with peace because they then can't demonize other people. They can't blame their failings on Israel or the Jews or the Sunnis or the West. You know, they actually have to start taking responsibility for their own governance and their own failings. And so actually dialing down to have a situation of peace is very, very threatening for revolutionary or post-revolutionary regimes that thrive on the demonization of enemies. So if we were really clever, that would be our policy because it's the best way of of wrong-footing the Mullahs. Bob, I understand that the report really focuses on Iran's human rights record and holding Iran accountable um, for its human rights record, which we've discussed already. And also, you know, we've discussed other countries in the region as well in that context. But we've discussed today uh, primarily bettering forms of engagement, you know, using that sort of carrot and stick approach, that soft power, hard power approach. So how does the report published by the committee incorporate that into its recommendations? In particular, what we're saying is that we need to engage more. And the more that we can engage and more we can get countries to engage, and the more you have a sense of trying to find a new beginning for the Middle East, in which case the Iran is not a pariah state in it, that is a way forward, because then Iran can open up, then, then it can grow its economy, then it can offer its people a better life, then frankly it has to start taking responsibility for its own failings rather than blaming them on everyone else. So the end state is to achieve a more peaceful relationship with them, and then they'll stop this appalling practice of taking state hostages as well. The last question that I wanted to ask both of you was how important you felt it was to sort of engage with Iranian communities here in the diaspora and elsewhere. I mean, CMEC has a long history of engaging with many of the, you know, many members of the Iranian diaspora here in in London and in the wider UK, which we have, you know, there's a huge community. Um, So how important is that for the sort of the future um, of Iran and the future of engagement with Iran? It's incredibly important. And in fact, one of the things that we don't do well enough is use our diasporas. You know, Britain and London is one of the most cosmopolitan places on earth. And London is the greatest global city. And we have diasporas from all over. And actually, the Foreign Office is not plugged into those diasporas enough. I mean, it slightly depends on how well connected that diaspora is into their home country or the original country that they came from. And if that diaspora isn't necessarily particularly well connected or has a very different set of values, maybe like the Cuban diaspora in Miami, it's quite an antagonistic relationship to the Cuban regime. It may not be entirely useful, but in principle, absolutely, we should be using diasporas in a positive way to make sure we understand, to see how policy ideas and and messages resonate with communities, especially those people who have stronger ties to the mother country. So for sure, we should be using that because they're an incredibly important asset. And actually, it's great that we have those people in the country anyway. I would agree with Bob in theory, and I would actually also probably in practice very much encourage greater cultural engagement with the Iranian diaspora. My caveat uh, would be that obviously the Iranian diaspora is by no means homogenous and not always as plugged into the mother country. 
And in fact, there's a huge sort of dissident community and activist community in the Iranian diaspora. And so that activist community and, and dissident community is also highly polarized and, and sort of diaspora politics are very factionalized as well. So I think one has to have a good reflection and understanding of um, the diversity of views and that there is no clarity uh, within the diaspora in terms of support for the Islamic Republic or support for particular opposition groups. And I think it's dangerous for the UK government to lend support for certain opposition groups because uh, it's very fractured, the situation, um, both here, both in the United States and in other countries. And on top of that, the diaspora is in many ways and in many cases very detached from people inside Iran. And my sense is that politicized diaspora has a different, maybe a different endgame than some people inside the country. So turning to them, and sort of maybe repeating the mistakes of the past is not necessarily um, always a good idea in that regard. But cultural, historical, greater understanding and celebration, absolutely. I fully accept what Sanam says. And the, and the problem is, it's absolutely right. I, mean, I had an Iranian friend many years ago and, they, and they, they had fled after the fall of the Shah. So clearly a lot of people are here because they fled the regime and because they were significantly opposed to the Revolutionary Guard and the Ayatollahs. Now, whether that's because they were Shah loyalists or whether they were Jewish, but living in Tehran for whatever. So there are many different groups. So for sure, one has to tread carefully. And I think it's a very, very valuable point. Apologies if it wasn't clear about it. Pitch out there to whoever sort of listens. I would just say that as we seem to be on the precipice of new discussions between Iran and the UK, France, Germany, the US and other signatories, I think there's a real opportunity for the UK to take a, a really important position in these negotiations, not just to preserve the JCPOA, which is seen to be very valuable, but actually in the next steps beyond the JCPOA, which require heavy lifting, not just from the United States, but for other countries. And here, the UK has strong relationships around this, the region, particularly in the Arab Gulf. And I think that there is a good prospect for the UK to back channel and engage and try to promote greater, um, uh, find off ramps um, between Iran and, and the Arab Gulf states as well, so that they can prepare their terrain for broader negotiations and sort of better understand the positions. And this is, of course, an opportunity for a post-Brexit Britain to take a stronger and, and more engaged role in the Middle East and, and one where the UK can be balanced and bring together multiple actors. Wise and final words of advice there from Sanam, calling for a stronger, more engaged and inclusive role in the Middle East by the UK, a huge opportunity for post-Brexit Britain. I'd just like to thank you both again for joining me today. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you both, and I really hope that we can speak again. The brilliant Dr. Sanam Vakil, Deputy Director of the Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham House, and the real Iran export voice, and the always fantastic to speak to Bob Seeley, Conservative MP for the Isle of Wight, and a prominent member of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Thank you both so much. And it was very fascinating to listen to Saddam and I felt I learned lots as ever.